today is from 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you, and how shall I make atonement, that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, The man who has consumed us and planned to destroy us, so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us, so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. Lord, as um, Aaron read this morning, we just thank you for the opportunity to gather together and worship, um, and we pray that that opportunity would not be taken for granted. We thank you that um, you give us community, you give us fellowship, you give us um, the chance to live life in the company of other believers. We pray that that community would um, just continue through the summer when everyone has lots of plans and feels more scattered. We pray that we would still make a point of coming together and of encouraging one another and building one another up in you. Pray for Mark as he brings your word today. Give him the words to speak through your spirit. Let it be um, as you intend and let nothing get in the way of that. Pray that our hearts would be receptive and that we would leave this place um, more with a better understanding of who you are, more in love with you, and uh, just strengthened to continue in obedience. Well, good morning. Oh, there you are. Lights are turning on. Good to see everybody. Glad that you're here. Beautiful day. Yeah, it's going to get hot again, so enjoy it. Open the windows today. Let the, the cold air come, well, cold air come in, and enjoy the beautiful weather that God has given us until it gets hot again, and uh, wait, but we're not going to talk about that. We're not going to talk about that. We're continuing in 2 Samuel. We've got only a, a few weeks left, uh, probably, well, probably about five weeks or so, six weeks in 2 Samuel, and then we're going to hit Jude, the book of Jude, and then for the fall, we'll start uh, 1 Corinthians. But today, last week, we looked at uh, David and, uh, well, the last couple weeks and taking care of uh, his enemies once again removing the head of uh, the rebellious Sheba and bringing the, the country back together again, being reestablished as the king. And then this week, this week you have a famine in the land, and then we end, well, next week, and then towards the end we start ending with David's praise for God's deliverance. And all of that comes together. It's all... Um, interacting together, if you want to say, in, in a literary way in this book. So we want to look at the beginning and the, where we're at right now, and then what happens when we look next week in the next chapter. All of it um, influences each other. But today, working on chapter 21, have you ever had a moment in your life with a family member or a friend 
in which you know something's wrong, you know that there's something between the two of you, but you have absolutely no idea what it is. Has anybody been there? Most of the husbands should probably raise their hands, right? Yeah. There are some, there's something, there's just something. You don't know what it is. They're not telling you what it is, but there's a hint. They're angry with you. They're annoyed. They're being quiet. They're hurt. There's something that's there in your interactions with them that, that hints that something's wrong. And so, you go over in your head. What did, what, did, what did I do the last couple of days? What Did I say something in my last, my last interaction with them that was probably offensive to them? Well, I, I, can't, I can't think of anything. And so, what should you do? That's a question. What should you do? Thank you. Who said that? Thank you. All the adults are like, I have absolutely no idea what we should do. You should go talk to them, right? You go to the source. You ask them, all right, what have I done? What have I said that has caused this rift between us? Because if you don't go to them, it's just going to stew and stew and stew until finally it explodes, right? And then you're like, whoa, where did that come from? Go to the source. And this is David's situation in chapter 21. A year of little or no rain in the land of Israel, it happens. It happens at times. But three years of drought, that's something big. Something's going on. And David sensed that something wasn't right. And so he goes right to the source. He sought the face of the Lord, it says. Meaning that he sought God's guidance and his wisdom as to why is this why is this drought happening? Why is this famine happening? And guess what? God actually answered him. That's one of the themes in this chapter. God actually answers. And he says there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So Saul's blood guilt was affecting the entire nation of Israel. Now in order to better understand what's happening here, we're going to go to my favorite subject, which, does anybody know what my favorite subject in school was? History. No, I love math, yes, but no, history. I am an amateur history buff. Absolutely love it. My wife says my, he- my head is just filled with information that nobody needs to know, okay? But Old Testament church history, her church history even goes all the way back to the Old Testament, Okay, we need to better understand what's going on here. We have to go back to the Old, further back in the Old Testament. As Israel is entering the land of Canaan, remember Joshua is leading them, it began to systematically defeat and destroy the different cities in that region. This is after Jericho. They go in, they defeat Jericho, and then they go to this city, and then they go to that city. And the people of Gibeon see the writing on the wall. And instead of waiting for their turn to be destroyed, they took the initiative. They dressed up as though they had been coming from, that they had journeyed from a long ways away, a land far away. And they even completed the whole deception by having dried food and dried wineskins to look like, well, these were, they said that these were, these were new and they were full. And now look, they're all shriveled up and they're empty. We traveled a long way 
ways, and we want to make peace with you, Israel. Now, the problem is, is that Israel was not to make any covenant with any of the people of Canaan. And though Joshua was suspicious at the time, he never sought God's advice, and so he made a covenant with the people of Gibeah. Only later to find out about their deception, but by then it was too late. They had already made the covenant. Israel was now at peace with the Gibeonites, and they were bound by an oath to the Lord to protect them. Now fast forward to 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 1, and we find that Saul, King Saul before David, had broken that covenant by putting the Gibeonites to death. And this incident of Saul, it isn't given to us. We're not given any details. Um, So any guess as to why Saul did this would be an assumption. And one of the rules when it comes to Scripture, well, in life in general, assumptions are dangerous things, right? So when it comes to Scripture and you start throwing assumptions around, all of a sudden you're way off in left field and the Bible says nothing about that. So we got to be very careful. We don't know why Saul did it. All we know, uh, other than he was zealous, it says, for, for Israel. And so all we know is that his, his actions, Saul's actions, bring blood guilt upon him and his household, which in the end then affected the entire nation through the famine that God brought upon Israel. Blood guilt is part of the law. Blood guilt happens when someone kills another unjustly and and intentionally, a.k.a. murder. So when you, in the Old Testament, you murder someone, blood guilt is put upon you, and a sacrifice must be made, an atoning sacrifice must be made in order to satisfy that blood guilt, because blood guilt makes the person ritually unclean, unable to worship the, wor- the Lord rightly. And not dealing with the blood guilt, ignoring that, brought the Lord's judgment upon the, lo- upon the land. That's in Deuteronomy 19. And it affect, affects the nation as a whole. And so in other words, this is a way of God saying, if there's a murder, if something has happened, and it's not dealt with, I'm going to bring judgment upon you, a.k.a. you better deal with it so you don't have to face my judgment. Saul's actions against the Gibeonites checks off all these boxes, meaning that his blood guilt had to be dealt with even though he was no longer alive. Now, so should David refuse to deal with it? Then the famine would continue and the people would continue to suffer and many of the Israelites would die because they have no food. And so David approaches the Gibeonites, and he asks them, what shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that, and I think this is the key to this passage, this chapter, that you may bless the heritage of the Lord. What is the heritage of the Lord? It's the people. It's Israel. What can I do to satisfy this blood guilt so that I can make atonement for that sin so that through it, we as a people may be blessed, a.k.a. so the famine could stop and we could not die. And the Gibeonites' answer is gruesome. 
Let seven of Saul's sons be given to us. And so let's continue reading. We're going to read verse 7 through 9. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, which is a different Mephibosheth. That's not the one. That's not Jonathan's son. So that's got to make that clear. And the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Maholahite, and he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged him them on the mountain before the Lord, and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest, at the beginning of barley harvest. To make atonement is to make a reconciliation between God and man. Atonement means there's a relationship break there. Something has happened. And so a sacrifice must be made so that the relationship between God and man can be reconciled together. And in this case, Saul's killing of the Gibeonites was bad enough to create a rift between the two nations, yes, Gibeon and Israel, but even more deeply, Saul's actions were against the Lord because he broke a covenant that was made in the presence of the Lord with an oath to the Lord. That's Joshua 9.19. So Saul's blood guilt upon the nation of Israel comes from his breaking of that covenant that was given before the Lord, a very serious crime that receives a very serious punishment. Because in our Western minds, in our enlightened and humane minds, we say, You're killing seven people for Saul's blood guilt, and they didn't even do it? That's horrible. Well, considering that Saul probably killed thousands of Gibeonites, I'm going to get in trouble for this, seven seems pretty small. I'm not saying that they're not worthy of life. That's not what I'm saying. But so easily we we tend to diminish and we say, oh, seven Seven men, how would you like to be? Well, I wouldn't want to be those people, that's for sure. But at the same time, what it shows is the seriousness of the sin that Saul committed against God. It required the death of seven people to atone for one man's sin. Now, why wait until Saul's, after Saul's death to bring a famine upon the nation? You hear this a lot from me, right? We're not told. We don't know. Uh, We're only told that the blood guilt needs to be removed, and to do that is going to cost the lives of seven of Saul's household. And so David gave these seven men into the hands of the Gibeonites, and this is important too, they hung them before the Lord. I think you know where this is going, right? This detail of hanging is important because the law reads a hanged man is cursed by God. These seven men became cursed by God to remove the blood guilt of Saul and remove God's judgment upon the people of Israel. These seven men became the atoning sacrifice to remove God's 
judgment. Spoiler alert. You know where this is going? The cross? Okay, we won't go there yet. We're getting there. All right, so we're going to continue. Starting in verse 10 through 14. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought up there from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged, and they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zelah, in the tomb of Kish his father, and they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. So Rizpah, the concubine of Saul, the mother of two of the men who were hanged, she's mourning over her children, but not with weeping and wailing like you would expect. Instead, she mourns with stoic resolution to keep the animals away from the bodies. If you have a, a, a study Bible, the notes are really helpful. And this is what mine says. It was considered a disgrace when the bodies of the slain were allowed to become carrion for birds and beasts. Rizpah guarded the bodies until they could be buried. Even in the death of these men who had become cursed, honor is shown to them. And her actions have an effect on David. When the bodies of these seven men were ready to be buried, David gathered their bones together with the bones of Saul and Jonathan, and he buries them with honor in their ancestral tomb rather than letting them hang on the tree forever. And the result? God responded to the plea for the land, meaning that God ended the famine. The atoning sacrifice was accepted by God and he delivered his people from the famine. But God also delivered his people from their enemies, the Philistines, because now we've got this really weird passage toward the end of these Philistine battles. So let's read 15 through 22. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel, and David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. And Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze and who was armed with a new sword, fought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. After this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai, the Hushathite, struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. And Elhanan, the son of Jeroragim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. 
And there was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. The Philistines were a strong nation who had many among them who were known for their great size and strength. The famous David and Goliath battle, he's a Philistine. And it seems that Israel was constantly at war with these Philistines. They're a thorn in Israel's side. And they're constantly dealing with these great champions of the Philistines. Now, how long after the famine did these battles occur? We're not told. But that these events are written down before David's song of praise in chapter 22. This is where it all comes together, right? This song of praise for his deliverance from his enemies by the hand of God is super important. It's vital that we understand that and that we see that. Now, David may have killed Goliath, and his men may have killed similar giants, but who was the one who actually won the battle? It was the Lord. God's the one who delivered them. It was God who delivered David and his men and Israel from their enemies because God is a God of deliverance. Now, throughout this chapter, we see God's intervention. We see his deliverance. He brings a famine upon the land to reveal Saul's blood guilt. He accepts David's atoning sacrifice of the seven descendants of Saul as a plea for the land. He delivers David and Israel from the hand of the Philistines through David's mighty men. And David knows this is all God's doing because in the next chapter, he breaks out in song. He's praising the Lord for delivering him. Verse 1 delivering him from the hands of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. God intervened in the life of his people in order to drive them to him in praise. God intervened in the life of his people in order to drive them to him in praise, not away from him. Now, fast forward in Israel's history, to Judah, because remember, this book was written or put together during the time that Judah is in exile in Babylon. So this is year, hundreds of years later, after David. Okay, Judah finds itself in Babylon, and they're asking themselves these, these questions. Why had God sent them to this place? Will he ever bring them back home? Will they ever be restored to him? Will the Babylonians ever be defeated? God had patiently waited for his people to turn their hearts back to him, but when they refused, despite his many efforts, he sent them into exile, away from him, away from the land that he promised. His ultimate goal was to drive them back to him. He was willing to restore them to a right relationship with him, to atone for their sinful rebellion, to remove his judgment upon them, to defeat their enemies for them. He wanted to deliver them. Now, fast forward to today. It is Christ who has delivered us from our sin. 
than our enemies. Adam's guilt affects the whole of humanity, and we are all by nature sinful and rebellious against the desires and passions of God. And so we find ourselves today in a famine, starving for a right relationship with God. So what's to be done? What's to be done? How is our guilt to be atoned for? Well, the king willingly picked seven of his men and then he killed them. No, he didn't. He willingly offered himself as the atoning sacrifice for us, for his church. He became cursed by God in order to save his people from utter and everlasting destruction and death. He became the plea for, before God so that we might be saved. Let that sink in. I think if you're in the church for a long time, I, I'm the same way. When, when we're in the church for such a long time and we hear stories like this, and, and then you realize that every Sunday that Mark preaches, it's the same message every single time Jesus saved us from our sins. You're like, yeah, I've heard it before. But we need to be reminded of this. Our guilt before God is so great, we deserve to die. Our life should have been taken to pay for my debt and my guilt before God. And instead, my king sacrificed himself willingly so that I would not have to die. Like, how beautiful is that? That's not divine child abuse. It's divine love. It's loving that God would send his son and his son would willingly take, take and become the sacrifice for us to become cursed by God, to save us. He became the plea for us. And just like in 2 Samuel, God answered his plea. He removed the judgment of his wrath for our sins against him. And he gives us everlasting life. But then he goes even further because in Christ, our enemy of death is defeated. Now, death is a giant, right? It hangs over us, creating fear and discontentment in us. The older you get, the more you realize you're closer to death than you were a day before. Kids, you, you're not even thinking about this, right? It's not even in your mindset. When you go turn 70, 80, 90, and, you know, it hurts to just stand up, your body starts to wear down, death becomes more apparent. And in our society, people are afraid to talk about death. People are afraid to even mention it as if like, like if, if I talk about it, then it's really going to happen. Well, it is really going to happen. We just don't know when. Death is a giant. But Christ's death defeated the power of sin and his resurrection from the dead defeats the power of death over us. As his people, we no longer need to fear death. Because we know with confidence that the words of God are going to come true. That through Christ we are forgiven. Through Christ we are reconciled to God. That death is going to take us from this world directly into the presence of our King. 
And so we have no reason to fear death. The Lord accepted David's offering of those seven men as an atoning sacrifice, and he delivered the people of Israel from death. And in the same way, God the Father accepted Christ, his son, his offering of himself to to deliver those who believe and trust in him from eternal death. Jesus Christ is the better David. He's the better king. And he is the best and eternally effective atoning sacrifice. By his shed blood, by Christ's shed blood, all of our guilt is removed. All of it. All of it, past, present, and future. None of it is held against us. And we are reconciled to God. The rift is healed. The relationship is restored. We we can talk to Him. We can have confidence in Him. We don't fear Him in a negative way. But we embrace Him. And we love Him. And our great desire grows more and more each and every day to know him more. This king who sacrificed himself for us. Father, I pray. I pray that this this passage, Father, would sit and stew inside of us as your people, God, that you would you would remind us as your people of the sacrifice of your son and what he went through, what he did, and he did it all willingly knowing, God, that, 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 you, that you would save us through this, that his blood was enough to, to atone for our guilt before you. And I pray, Father, that as your people, when we recognize and we realize that that it would it would draw us into deep praise and glory of you that we would not take it for granted that we would not forget that we would not take advantage of it and instead father we would be constantly going to you to say thank you father we praise you for delivering us for reconciling us, for atoning for our guilt, for defeating our enemies, for giving us a way to you, for being our God. And so, Father, remind us, remind us of this truth. And I pray, Father, that we as your people would be examples and speak the truth of this truth to those around us don't know you. And if there's anyone hearing these words today, Father, that they would put their trust in you. That there is no sacrifice that we can make, Father, with that is good enough. That is good enough to atone for our great guilt before you. Except for your son, Father. So may they put their trust in him 
May they love him. May they see him as their king. May you change their hearts so that they will run to you in praise and glory and honor. We ask this, Father, in your name. Amen. And so, let's follow David's example. And let's stand together. And let's praise the Lord for his deliverance of us from our sins.